Our scripture for today is John 1, 19 through 34. John 1, 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After he comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Every Sunday morning, I get a text message from a Ugandan pastor friend of mine encouraging our church and praying for our church. So I would like to pray for us using his words that he sent me this morning. So please bow your heads with me. God, as my brother Ronald says, the coming of morning has often given hope to many for a change, a new start, and even a second chance. May this morning Give us fresh joy and zeal in the Lord Jesus. Jesus says in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. God, I pray, as Ronald tells us, that we would be reminded that we do indeed have life. New life in light of the fully satisfying and fully effectual work of Christ on the cross. Our Lord qualifies as the free gift of life with the declaration of abundance. May that Lord's word of life and abundance fill us with peace. Jesus is faithful and we cast ourselves upon him. Help us, God, to trust him today with all of our ordeals and strivings. May our hands be steady and these words be bold. May those abundant blessings be upon this church, Redemption City Church, this morning through this text. Amen. The Gospel of John tells an amazing story. Whether you read a lot of books or not, we are people who love good stories. We were made to love good stories. We just kind of twist them for our own purposes and in our sin, we like stories for the wrong reasons. So, one reason, or, there's a story called Harry Potter, you may have heard of it before, 
one of the most popular stories of our age. And you know what makes Harry Potter so popular? Books like Harry Potter are written in such a way that the main character, the hero of the story, is really an unlikely hero. He's weak, he's oppressed, he's ordinary. He's really just like you and me. And through no effort of his own, he becomes the most popular, the most important person in the world. And it makes us feel like maybe, maybe we have some hidden superpower that would make others respect us and need us. Because we want to live an exciting story like that, not these boring stories that we all live in. Humans were made for good stories, though, because God tells the best story. The problem is we want a story like Harry Potter where everybody's conspiring to make us into the hero. We pursue careers and and choose our friends based on the ones that are going to make us give us the most favor. We want all the important people to validate us and make us a significant part of the story. So we do that by looking to important people in the world and clinging to them. So I recently heard in the last couple weeks, spectacular news apparently, that the rapper Eminem has become a Christian. Wow. And he has partnered with Kanye West to come up with a new album. Kanye West, who a couple of years ago, another famous rapper who professes Christ publicly. Now, I'm not interested in judging the, today the genuineness of their faith. What interests me more right now is this eagerness of this desperate despair of Christians to cling on to conversion stories like that in order to validate our faith by these important culture shapers. We think, wouldn't it be awesome if Eminem really was a Christian? Imagine all of the influence he could have for Christ and his kingdom. But why is his conversion any more powerful, awesome, or influential than yours and mine? We're just desperate for such conversions because we're desperate for assurance in our own insecurities. We're desperate to find validation that we are an important part of the story. If that important person out there believes the same way I do, then I can be sure I'm on the good team in the story. And we see that same thing happening here at the beginning of the narrative of John's gospel. So last week, Jake set up the story really well for us, introducing us to the main character and these primary themes that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John. Primarily that Jesus is the eternal Word of God made flesh that you and I might have life in Him. And now, the narrative part of the story unfolds to reveal this Word made flesh to us. And John, the Gospel writer... It's kind of confusing. There's John the Baptist and John the guy who wrote the book. John, the gospel writer, introduces us to Jesus, this eternal word, by placing him against the backdrop of John the Baptist and these priests and Levites of the Pharisees. These priests want that kind of affirmation. The priests want to make themselves the heroes of the story. And you wonder, is John one of these like celebrity conversion kind of guys? What's he going to do with all of this? John himself could be quite the celebrity. But instead of making much of himself, he denies himself to make much of Christ. 
His entire ministry is for the purpose of calling the world to behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. That's what I hope to set up for us in this text. That the rest of this gospel would help us behold the Lamb of God. The first scene in the story is really a transition from the old covenant, the old creation, to a new creation and a new humanity centered on this lamb. Verses 20, 19 through 28 use John the Baptist kind of as a foil, as a background, a contrast. He's the final priest and prophet of the old covenant come to close the curtain on that old story. It's out with the old and now in with the new in verses 29 to 34, which shifts our attention onto Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everyone in this old way of thinking, old way of life, they think they understand the story. That's why these priests and Levites are here. But they don't realize that every part of the old story was pointing to something else, someone else that they didn't comprehend. This other person is the hero of the story. It's his story to be told. Every other role is just to reveal him to the world so that every one of us will behold the Lamb of God and then follow him as we are captivated by his beauty. Follow him out of our old lives and into the new. So let's begin this story this whole gospel story with John the Baptist showing us how to go out with the old. Let's read verses 19 just to 23 again. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, the first thing in this text I want to draw your attention to it's just this first phrase, this is the testimony of John. To testify is to be a witness, to be put on the stand, to give an account of something you saw. Explain it so others can understand what happened. Shine light on these circumstances. A testimony is never about the person on the stand, but only about what they witnessed. And John attends to bring attention to someone else with his ministry. This same word is translated two other times in verses 31 and 34 as bear witness. John is on the stand as a witness to give some information about Jesus. Now what's interesting about the way John the gospel writer is telling this story is that he's not just giving facts about Jesus' life and then telling you to go apply those facts to your life. John is telling a very vivid, immersive story full of Old Testament imagery. He's inviting you into this story so you can experience Jesus. You can walk with him and look at him and interact with him and know him. Not just gain knowledge, but to be a character in his story. 
Both John and Matthew tell stories about Jesus, including this baptism story, but the way Matthew tells the story is much more like reading a history book, and he references relevant previous studies done on these historical events. And it's really helpful and important for the purpose that he is trying to accomplish in his gospel. But John writes this gospel to tell us about Jesus in a completely different way. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis writing the Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis wanted to teach children about Jesus and inspire them to Christian virtue and to hate sinful ideas. And so he created this immersive world full of colorful drama that just makes your heart want to be there, to live in this magical world. And that's what John is doing with his gospel, drawing you into the magical, supernatural world of Jesus. And in this wondrous story of Christ, we begin with the backdrop of John the Baptist interacting with some priests and Levites. There's so many important little details as you're doing exegetical work. You have to ask, why those guys? Why did he give that detail? So the priests and Levites give us a clue of of the kind of scene being painted here. The priests and Levites are the guys in charge of the temple. Their job is to make sure the temple is functioning the right way. It's standing appropriately. They're guarding its borders. The furniture is in all the right spot and the, the lights are staying lit. It's the, only the right people are coming in. They're offering sacrifices and leading worship. So if they're coming to do all of this, uh, they're coming to investigate John the Baptist They must think that what's happening here in the river is similar to what they normally do. What they typically, what typically falls under their authority. And so they ask him a series of questions to kind of get to the, get down to business. Who are you? Verse 19. And what do you think you're doing here? In verse 24. So what is it that John's doing that's got them all riled up? He's baptizing people in the Jordan River. He's, according to the priests, this is somehow encroaching on their role. Because as some of the other gospel accounts tell us more clearly, that John is calling people to repentance. Like they have sinned and they need to come to him to wash away their sin in order to come back into God's presence. So this is actually quite similar to what the priests in the temple do. If you have sinned, you come to the temple with a sacrifice and you stand at the gate and you hand one of the priests your lamb, your goat, your bull, your pigeon, whatever it is you brought. And then you lay your hands on it like you're, you're passing off your identity, your sin onto that animal. And then the priest takes your animal to right to the next thing, the altar, and he slaughters it and burns it as a picture of covering up your sin, burning it away, judging your sin. And then the priest goes to the next thing in line, this big giant basin of water, and he washes himself in there to wash away all the uncleanness. And then he can walk into the temple, into the holy place where there's a table with bread and he can eat and have fellowship with God on your behalf. He can burn incense and offer prayers that go up to God on your behalf. You are in, on behalf, with this priest, you are in there in this temple of garden-like imagery. Like you have returned to the Garden of Eden 
to live and walk with God. It's an incredible image that has been set up to remind people of something greater. So why in the world is John the Baptist doing this kind of thing out at the Jordan River? Who is he to do this and why out here? Well, to answer that, they try to figure out who John is. They ask him his identity. He clarifies in verse 20, I'm not the Christ. John, the writer, tells us to be sure when he says that, he's not denying Christ, because if you deny Christ, then you can't enter. He's confessing Christ, but he's also confessing that he is not the Christ. And if he were, well, the Messiah has such authority to act in this way, but the priests are glad. This ragamuffin guy wearing camel's fur and eating locusts and honey doesn't ever comb his hair. Thank God he's not the Messiah. But they still have answers. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? What? Help us out here. Elijah and the prophet, these are more end times prophecies about this return of the Messiah. So at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi is the last book. He's the last prophet to speak. And then there was silence from God for hundreds of years. And the last thing Malachi said in chapter 4 verse 5 was that Elijah would come and usher in the Messiah. So is John that guy? He says he is not. Or the prophet. He's the one that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that there would be one like him, but a better prophet to come that the people would actually listen to and obey God. He's a very Messiah-like figure, but more of an emphasis on the prophetic ministry, not his kingly rule. But John also denies that he is this guy. Why is he being so coy? Why can't he just give a straight answer? Because John seems to be doing work that aligns with some priestly ministry, aligns with a prophetic ministry. He sounds like he's a royal representative. But John denies all of this. Who is this guy? Well, if we back up, and look at his birth story in Luke chapter 1, we learn a lot about him. It's quite a miraculous story. His father was a priest, which makes him a priest. He really does have this authority. And he was miraculously conceived in Zechariah and Elizabeth's old age. And God told him right in the temple that he was going to have a son named John. The Spirit was anointing him, coming upon John in order to be an Elijah-like precursor, forerunner to the Messiah. So John grew up knowing he was a priest. John grew up knowing he was meant to usher in the Messiah. He even says in verse 23, he's this voice crying out in the wilderness from Isaiah chapter 40 whose job it was to make straight the path for the Lord. So John knew this identity. He could have told the priests and Levites off with this authority. Why didn't he? Why did he deny these questions? Well, he was refusing to affirm their implications of what those labels meant. He refused to let them think their understanding of God's plan was accurate. He refused to let them believe that they were a vital part of the story. They didn't really understand what was happening. And John wasn't going to affirm their ideas. 
they think that they know who the Messiah is, but they are just clueless. They had so twisted the story to make it all about themselves. They would have just missed it anyway, even if he tried to explain it. They would have tried to get rid of him so that they could be the forerunners, jump in front of the line. But what's funny is that John doesn't even want the prestige for himself. He consistently denies it. He says in verses 26 and 27, that one is coming whose strap of his sandals, John is unworthy to even untie. He's unworthy to be the lowest slave. The guy who has to stand at the door, wait for his master to come home, take off his shoes and wash all the filth, all the muck, all the animal droppings, everything off his feet. John's not even worthy to be that guy. But he knows he's been called to this role. He knows his role is just to play a part in Jesus' story in such a way That everyone forgets who he is. Nobody cares who he is anymore. They're just so caught up in the majesty of Christ himself. But not only is he pointing people away from himself, he's really just pointing people away from the old covenant. Bringing to close an old covenant. Because John does have the right to be a priest. But that role is coming to an end. He's doing it in this dramatic fashion. Instead of acting it out at the temple complex on the mountain, he's out here in the wilderness. Way out in the Jordan River, verse 28 says, across the Jordan. More important details here. Giving us a clue to what John is trying to, the story he's trying to tell. And why the Jews missed it. Not only is he doing all these, not doing these ritual washings in the temple, but he's doing them outside the promised land, across the Jordan, out in the wilderness. All of these pictures should be triggering thoughts in the minds of careful Bible students. And remember back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden to the east. God promised them one day one of their sons would defeat the serpent and bring them back in. So if you're going to come back, you come in from the east. Abraham was called by God from a city in the east to come to this promised land. Later, when Moses is called to lead the people out of Egypt, you ever wonder why they they come up from Egypt, why they just don't go in from the southwest? They wander all the way around to come in from the east. And future generations would have the same imagery in the temple. It was a picture of the Garden of Eden, and it was facing east. So if you wanted to come into the presence of God, you had to turn your back on the east, turn your back on sin, come through the wilderness, enter in from the east, offer your sacrifice, wash yourself in water, and come and have fellowship with God. So the entire purpose of the priesthood, of the Levites, was to put this picture on display over and over, not because that itself brought them into God's presence, but to show them that one day someone was really going to come and lead them out of the east, back to the garden. John the Baptist knows this great picture. The Jews did not. John is standing at the place where Israel came in from their wilderness wandering, crossing through the Jordan into the promised land. He calls himself the messenger from Isaiah 40, where 
Isaiah is looking at the people in the future who are in exile in Babylon, which is to the east. And to get to Babylon or back from Babylon, you kind of have to go way up and around and down and over some rivers and through the woods, all kinds of difficulties. And Isaiah is telling them when the Messiah comes, straight path back to God through him, not a winding path through the wilderness like Israel out of Egypt. See, John's not making a big deal of himself because he's just trying to show us that all of those pictures are coming to an end. He's announcing the fulfillment of all these promises. He's calling people to stop with the role playing and come and partake in the real thing. Out with the old covenant of shadows and types, in with a new covenant of reality and actualization. Out with the old priesthood and its endless rituals. And in with a new priest, a new sacrifice, a new temple that is once completed for all time. Out with the old creation of sin and a curse. And in with a new creation of righteousness and a blessed, abundant life. John is happy to die with that old creation in order that God's people would find a new identity in the creation to come through the one who would lead them there. So let's look at the one who brings in the new in verses 29 to 34. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is the, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. Throughout this whole section, John the Baptist is trying to downplay his own importance. And he explains how that even before Even though he was born before Jesus, he's a few months older than him, according to the flesh. Though he seems to be acting with a lot of authority to say, oh, there's someone coming after me. Usually someone who comes after has lesser authority. He's saying, no, 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 no. This guy has more authority. He actually existed before me. Like verse 1 says, he was in the beginning. He's the creator. He actually is the one who commissioned me to this mission to usher him in his whole purpose he says in verse 31 is to reveal to israel this creator king this prophet priest jesus is the prophet the priest and the king but they couldn't figure out how all these things fit together and so john is going to confront their expectations with all of that temple imagery but here in the wilderness He says even at first he didn't understand this. A couple times he says, I didn't know him either. Well, you did and you, but you, and you knew who you were, but he didn't see how the whole picture fit together until he baptized Jesus. And then it all made sense. So he says on the next day, when he sees Jesus coming, he introduces him not as prophet, not as the priest, not as the king. 
Jesus is all these things, but he introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's combining all of these ideas in a new way that transforms what those titles mean. The identity of Jesus is so essential for the story that John is assembling. Lamb of God wasn't a title that many were expecting for their Redeemer. Yet he picks this image as the primary title because it's vital for understanding this story that we're called to live in and what our hero is doing. Remember that John the Baptist is bringing the temple activity out to the wilderness, out to the Jordan River. John is a priest, and he's washing people to bring them into God's presence. But if you remember all of this pattern, there was a step missing in what he's doing. They need as a sacrifice. You can't wash first. You have to have a sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb. Another significant image in the Old Testament. Remember, after Adam and Eve were kicked out, Cain was condemned to wandering because he didn't offer the right sacrifice. Abel offered a lamb so he could be closer to God. Abraham promised his son as they were building this new nation in the promised land. He promised his son, God will provide a lamb. Israel to escape Egypt, had to spread the blood of a lamb on their doorposts to ward off the the angel of death and they could pass through the waters of the Red Sea as they head to the promised land. The pattern of the Old Testament was always that a sacrifice was required to put away the old life so you could go through the water to a new life, as we saw in the temple. The lamb is required to forgive sins. The lamb was a substitute for a new humanity. The lamb came to put an end. This lamb came to put an end to this old priesthood. All of the old prophetic ministry. Bring an end to the old line of kings and bring all of them together in Christ himself. This ultimate lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world. Not sins. Isn't that interesting? He says sin like there's one. It's not really speaking of all every person all over the world and all the sins they have. He's not thinking in those terms of all the individual sinners. As though Jesus came to just forgive people. He came to deal, do away with the very idea of sin and the curse that Adam brought on to us through his sin. He came to remake all of creation. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, all creation groans for redemption. John the Baptist's entire ministry is bringing to end this old priesthood, bringing to end an old covenant and an old creation, showing Israel out in the wilderness that all of their feasts and all of their rituals and all of their laws were not the way back to the garden. They were just pointers. They were just signs leading us to Christ as the way back. John is out in the wilderness to show them all they're doing is wandering. Everything they do shows that they are lost. They're trying to find pleasure and peace in so many things. They have no direction. But he says, I'm doing this in verse 31 to reveal the lamb to Israel. The lamb is the straight path to paradise. John admits 
He didn't really understand this all until this moment when he baptized Jesus. And then God revealed that the Spirit came down and hovered over Jesus in his baptism. And it remained on him like a dove. Again, Jesus is fulfilling all of this Old Testament imagery. It became clear to John, just like the Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 and brought life out of the water. Or just like in the flood in Genesis 8, Noah sends the dove out and it hovers over the water until it finds a branch and brings it back. There's new life, Noah. Now the Spirit hovers over Jesus coming out of the water as a symbol that a new creation has begun. He's starting a new creation out of the wilderness, out of people from all over the world. Jesus is putting an end to an old creation and starting a new one. And in this new one, Jesus is the new Adam who has the spirit remain on him. Doesn't come and go like it did for so many in the Old Testament. Remains on him. And then this amazing promise in verse 33. When it remains on him, he turns and he baptizes with his own Holy Spirit. He is going to do the same for those that follow him. So when you are baptized, as we're going to celebrate next week, it's a picture of you dying under the waters of judgment, going in and being buried, and Holy Spirit-filled people are hovering over you, and they pull you up out of the water to be part of a new humanity in a new creation, dead to the old way of life. All who follow him get that spirit descending on them forever. This is John's testimony. He has seen this life and he bears witness to Jesus as the head of this new creation. Jesus is the Lamb of God doing away with the sin of the old world. He's the Son of God, he says in verse 34. The first man in a new creation. That eternal word, Son of God, become flesh to be the first head, the first Man of a new humanity. This is an incredible story that we are embarking on over the next couple of years. Unlike Narnia, this one is true. And we get to live it. So how do we do that? What is John leaving for us here to consider how we should live in this story? First thing that we need to realize is we must think about the priests and Levites who wanted to make the story about themselves. So how do you try to make the story about yourself? Whose story are you living? You're not actually the main character in your own life. You're just a secondary character. Jesus is the main character. Remember how the priests and Levites were trying to strategically place themselves in the right spot so they could be part of the heroic work. They thought they were main characters in the temple story, but they forgot the temple story was to tell Christ's story of rescue and return to the garden. How do we do the same? How do you spend your money and your time and your effort pointing to make much of yourself and of your own family instead of making much of Christ? Or how do you come into this temple gathering and want to make it about you to fit your needs and your desires and your preferences? You come to Jesus because you want him to be a certain kind of savior, a certain kind of friend or provider to you so that the story 
of your life will unfold the way you want it to. But you must remember that this is a temple activity, the gathering of the saints, where we are gathering together to call one another out of the wilderness, cross the Jordan, to give you a taste of the new creation, give you new visions of hope, a new language to speak with, reshaping your mind to think through the story of Christ you are living in. And second, you must know your role. Once you recognize it's not your story and that you're a secondary character with Jesus at the center of it, now you are called to actually live out your secondary role with excellence. You don't look to your own qualifications or, or someone else's experience to validate your role, but you just come back to the word and you come back to his people over and over again to convince you that you are secure. Celebrity conversions have no bearing on the truth of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. The most powerful people in the world are still secondary characters. John himself could have boasted in all of his celebrity pedigree, but he denied it to plead people to come to Jesus. This is your job as well. Testify with your life, that you have seen Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Son of God leading you to a new creation by His death and resurrection. So you can put away your old life and embrace a new one. So I plead with you today, leave the wilderness behind. Die to yourself, take up your cross, follow Him into the resurrection to eternal life. Let your life be a backdrop for others to behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. God, I thank you for all these brothers and sisters. As I proclaim the word and they are so eager to hear it and receive it, they want to see more of Jesus. I pray you would continue to reveal him as we share a meal together provided by Jesus. As we sing together songs to our risen Lord Jesus, show us more of Christ. Show, show us Christ in our fellowship, in our meals together. Show us Christ that he is a worthy character, main character, hero of this story, and help us follow him into his new creation. Amen.